any of these questions that we're going to be speaking about tonight. Um, Dan actually specifically asked the, uh, earlier on today if he wouldn't see any of them. He uh, specifically didn't want to see uh, any of these questions. And so um, I thought I might ask a really quick one. This yeah. uh, um, You could either answer just a yes or a no, okay. or you could... Uh, you could um, uh, expand I'm a little intrigued bit. now. So <laughs> here you go. Did Jesus really die on the cross? Yes. Uh, as far as ancient history goes, we have as much evidence for that particular fact of history as for any other thing in late antiquity. So uh, yes, there is a lot of source evidence for the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. Um, let me just, before we dive into other questions, I'll say a couple of quick things, uh, particularly for some of the youth that are here, and maybe this is the first time that you've been in church. Uh, asking questions of God is totally okay. It's totally okay. One of the things that Jesus said is part of the greatest commandment given to humanity is to love God with our minds, that your mind is a gift that God gives to you, and he expects you to use it, to think well, to think clearly, to ask hard questions. And so the truth if it really is true, it actually invites question. You know when you tell your parents a story, you make something up because you did something you shouldn't have, and you try and cover it over with a good story, but then they start asking you for more details in that story, and you get nervous because you realize the more details you start giving, you're going to contradict yourself, and the more they look into it, the more they realize it's a fake. Well, the truth isn't like that. The truth always holds up under scrutiny. And so if God really does exist, and Jesus really does reveal to us who God is, if he did die and rise again, no matter how much you dig into that, you're going to walk away more confident rather than less by investigating the evidence. And so truth invites questions. I'm stoked that you're asking questions tonight. The other thing, though, to know is the way that we do Q&A is always going to leave you disappointed. And that's to kind of let myself off the hook a little bit. But in general, the questions that you're asking are going to be phenomenal. And they are worthy of a long conversation over open books or open Wikipedia, where we can start digging into some of the source material and say, oh, what do you think about this? And go back and forth. But because of the format, usually what I try and do is act a little bit like your GP, right? A question's asked, I'm like, oh, look, let me refer you to the specialists. I'll do a little bit of diagnosis. I'll say one or two things that might be helpful, but then I'll point you to a resource. Somewhere you can go online, maybe one of our videos or articles or something else so you can keep digging deeper and just keep taking more steps to check that out. Um, so a couple of those might be helpful, and then let's just dive in, hey? And just know as well, we're not, unfortunately, we won't be able to get through all of the questions here tonight. Uh, there are several questions here, and they are really good ones too. So uh, next question, Dan, was creation made in six literal days or over millions of years? This is a really good question. And again, if you're a newcomer to Christianity, you'll be like, what on earth are you talking about? And the reality is Christians disagree. There are two sources of information that we have for truth about God. One is by studying nature, the things that God has made, and that reveals certain things about God, namely that there is some kind of first cause, a creator, and that he's intelligent, that he's intentionally designed things to bring about life like us. But the other way that we can learn things is by studying what God has revealed in Scripture, in the Bible, in a complex library of ancient documents where God has spoken to people and through people to reveal to us who he is and what he wants from us in the world. And Christians disagree about how to interpret both. 
the evidence of nature, as well as this ancient literature, what we call scripture or the Bible. And so there are a range of different Christian positions from the idea that the earth is very, very young, some six to 10,000 years old, and that humanity is specially created by God at 4004 BC, so determined one English bishop in studying the genealogies in the Bible, uh, and that uh, you know that's young earth creationism at one end. And at the other end, many of my teachers over in England were theistic evolutionists. They think the universe is very, very old, some 13.8 billion years, that the earth is very old, some 4.5 billion years, and that God uses a process of evolution to bring about bipedal hominids, kind of like us, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, and then he specially revealed himself to a community or a pair of these beings and, uh, and gave them his image and moral knowledge and a paradise and a role. Uh, and so Christians disagree. They're the extremes of the spectrum. There are different positions along the way. What is really important, what everyone agrees on, is that God's stands as our ultimate creator, that scripture reveals to us the purposes behind God's creation, and that our exposure to suffering, to sickness, to death, and to decay as human beings comes from our relationship with God going wrong. That sense that we all have, that this is not the way that things should be, that deep intuition is explained by the way that God created us to relate to him and to the environment is no longer the way that we experience the world. Something is deeply wrong, and the Bible calls it sin. That's something all Christians agree upon. Now, as to whether I lean to one or the other, I'm not going to tell you. Because you know what? That just shortcuts your responsibility to take seriously the role of studying the evidence and forming your own conscience. Way too often, we outsource our thinking to one of our heroes, a sports hero or a celebrity or some intellectual beast, and we're like, that's what they think. Yep, I agree with them. And it's lazy. It's not worshiping God with our minds, and it's not helpful. It leads to tribalism, to groupthink, to fighting amongst ourselves. Instead, one of my profs said, take seven years. Whenever you come across anything that's controversial, give yourself seven years. Study the data from all of the angles. See the best arguments for each one, and pray. If you're a Christian, pray. God, would you help me form a faithful conscience in answering this question? And that's the best way you can go about doing it. If you want a good resource, uh, one of my profs in England, a guy named uh, John Lennox, wrote a book called Seven Days That Divide the World. Gives you a bit of an entry-level conversation into this topic, or a really hard one. You can pick up uh, three views on creation and evolution. It's where all these really smart scholars argue for one perspective, the others disagree, and then they respond to it, and then the other person argues for their perspective perspective, the others disagree, they respond to it. So you get all the back and forth of the scientific and the theological arguments that might be helpful to you. So That's wonderful. And I think there's a whole heap of other um, different thing, different books in that series that where you can yeah. explore different things. It's, uh, there's 38 volumes currently in this Zondervan Counterpoint series. So if you're maybe a budding Bible scholar, it's a really good thing to invest into. It's about 1200 bucks to get them all. Uh, and you can go through and say three views on this, four views on this, five views on that really helpful. Wonderful. Next one, the primary objection to Christianity that my friends who aren't Christians have is around how could a good God allow suffering? How should I respond to, uh, to this question that they have? It's a really good question. Um, I'd encourage you to go and watch our video on this on our YouTube channel because uh, as there's a chapter in the book too, this was my biggest barrier to believing in God. Um, I grew up with Christian folks, they raised us, talked about God, took us to church, heard stories about Jesus, taught me the Lord's Prayer before bed. Uh, but when I was nine, we were in a family holiday driving and, uh, and had a car accident that left my mum with some sort of critical head injuries and brain damage enduring from there. 
And that sort of torpedoed my childlike belief in God because I couldn't understand why a good God, if he loved us and could have stopped it, didn't step in to do that. The same way we might say, why doesn't God stop what's happening in the Ukraine right now? Why doesn't God stop what happened with COVID? Why doesn't God stop people dying of starvation in Africa? Why are these bad things happening? God could stop it. Why isn't he? And so this is a really serious objection. And it goes back to the very origins of Christianity. People have been asking for thousands of years. And the challenge for a question like this is it's really two parts. There is a head component, intellectual component. Can we come up with good reasons why an all-powerful and an all-loving God might let bad things happen. This is the task of what they call theodicy. And there are about 11 different theodicies that Christian thinkers have come up with. Things like free will, that if God wanted to create a meaningful universe with human beings who can experience relationships and love and build lives, well, we can't be robots. We can't be puppets. We can't be programmed. We have to be free capable of loving and being loved, of being able to choose what we do rather than having that chosen for us. But as soon as you give a kid free will, well, you all know what you do with your free will, right? We don't always listen to our parents. We don't always obey what's best for us. And so the Christian story says that's exactly what happened. God created us for deep and meaningful relationships, gave us free will, and then we used that freedom to break God's moral law and so became broken by it, damaged by evil, that things aren't the way that God intended. But the reason why he let it happen is because free will is so meaningful. That's one of a bunch of answers. And so I'd encourage you to to maybe explore some more of them on our our website. But the thing that I think is the second aspect of this question is, even if you don't know all the answers, even if there are some good reasons, but we don't always know why God does or doesn't intervene, can we really trust him? Can we really trust that God cares that he's there? And I think this is something that the Christian story really has a leg up on. The good news for the world, that if you are suffering, you should want Christianity to be true. Because the Christian story is true, you get Jesus. And Jesus said, if you want to know what God's like, how he feels about evil and suffering, then look at me. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And Jesus wept over the grief and the suffering of those who he loved. He treated death and suffering and sickness as enemies of humanity. He went around restoring beauty to the blind and music to the deaf and dancing to the lame, his ministry of miracles, starting to set everything right. He's promised an eternal future where the sting of suffering will be gone forever. He'll wipe away every tear, no more pain, suffering, sickness, crying, or death anymore. That with him, suffering and death don't get the last word resurrection unto eternal life in God's presence, that that is what we can look forward to. And he really showed the depths of his love for us in the midst of suffering by actually coming to suffer with us and for us. That if you believe in Christianity, you believe in a God who has scars, that Jesus suffered on the cross for you and for me, to be able to say, irrespective of whether we know all the answers as to why a good God would let bad things happen, we know that he loves us because he was willing to endure excruciating agony, literally excrucis from the cross in Latin, excruciating agony to be able to prove the depths of his love by embracing your death and my death on the cross. And I just think that is such a gift for people who are suffering, to have hope, to have meaning in their suffering and to have the presence of God with them who will never leave them nor forsake them. And so if you have to suffer in this world and you have to suffer as a Christian or an atheist, everyone suffers. I would much rather suffer with Jesus than suffer without him. 
And so I think it makes a massive difference whether you believe in God or not when it comes to suffering. And so, yeah, I encourage you to check out those resources, particularly our video um, online, for a bit more on that. That's wonderful. Now, this one is a, it's a longer question. It's probably a bit more science-y than, uh, than some of the others. So, um, my brother studies astrophysics and believes that the universe is so mind-bogglingly big that the Bible's reasons for its size, e.g. to set uh, times and seasons to show God's glory, are lacking and thinks that instead it must be so big because it generated itself. He also believes that it must contain intelligent life and thinks that this likely contradicts with Christian belief. What should a theology of space look like and how can it counter these objections which often float around in scientific circles? Yeah, really interesting. And I've certainly heard that from popular science communicators too. You know, the world is so big, the universe, look at how vast it is. Who are we to think that we have any sort of meaning in the eyes of some sort of creator? We're just space dust. And what's funny is that's a statement in the Bible. Go and read Psalm chapter 8. When I look at the heavens and study the works of thy hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Like, these guys need to read the Bible a little bit more, I think. Um, now, th th around the vastness of the universe, uh, again, this comes down to a little bit of what I was discussing in this morning's topic. There are fine-tuning reasons why you need the kind of universe that we have to be able to get life in the first place, that we needed to have certain conditions that resulted in the expansion of our universe at this rate, uh, that the, the vastness is largely explained in that regard. I think it does nothing to undermine the existence of God. I think the purpose of the heavens, this idea of staring into the stars, is to show us the bigness of God, to have that awe and wonder. And so someone like Richard Dawkins says, man, when you look at the photos that Hubble's Deep Space Telescope takes now of galaxies some 12 billion years ago in their early formation, because we can study distant light now in how long it takes to reach to us. And he's like, wow. I'm like, yes, wow. That sense of wow is meant to lead you to a wonder at the designer, the creator who stands behind it. And so I, I really don't understand the objection other than why would such a big God care about puny humans? Uh, and that is just the nature of the love of God, that human beings are made in his image. He created us as earthly kids to him as an heavenly father. So irrespective of our size, he loves us. He's devoted to us. He reveals himself to us. Now, the second part of that question on alien life, um, there, this is something that Christians have thought about for a long time. If you go and read C.S. Lewis, he has a much lesser known space trilogy of fiction books where he explores travels to other planets and discovery of other intelligent beings and what that would mean. In, and uh, so is it possible that there are is intelligent life in other parts of the universe. Back in the 60s and 70s, the origins of sort of the SETI program, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, we used to think that there were only a couple of preconditions that planets would need to be able to have life as part of them. We now know that that list is way longer. So the expectation that you'll find intelligent life on billions and billions of planets is not something that's shared broadly amongst the scientific community anymore. It's vastly more improbable than what we, we once thought. Even still, though, is it possible that life exists out there? Absolutely. God created the universe with the capacity for it fostering life. And, uh, and if God has allowed life to either to develop or has created it on other worlds, that does nothing to undermine the integrity of his revelation to human beings. It just would raise a bunch of questions for Christians, right? So we meet another intelligent race. Well, what knowledge do they have of their creator? What relationship has he 
given to them? What moral knowledge do they have? Are they purely some kind of creatures that are developed with rationality but not with some kind of moral intelligence or moral commitment to one another? How do they operate and function? Are they in a pre-fallen state so that they are not morally obliged to their creator for having sinned? Uh, or are they requiring some kind of moral salvation? Has God revealed himself to them in their own personal history? These are all questions that we would have to ask the aliens to find out. Um, certainly the cross was for humanity. Christ was incarnated as a human being to become the savior for humanity. And so I don't think we have any missionary responsibility to go and reach to the ends of the stars. But, uh, but these would be fascinating questions to ask if we met other intelligent life forms. And so it might surprise some, uh, who, who, someone's brother to, um, to find out that there are conferences that have been held over in Europe by Christian theologians to process this sort of question. What would be the implications of us discovering intelligent life on another planet in terms of our missionary responsibilities and others. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Now, uh, sort of bouncing off the first part of your response just then, um, when you were speaking about the love of, of God. Um, now, the question that someone has asked is, does God have a plan for everyone? Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of a hard question to parse out because, I mean, what do you mean by a plan? Uh, you know, these are sort of questions in a conversation where we'd go back and forth and just so I'd be able to clarify exactly where you're coming from. Um, certainly God has a desire for everyone. When you read through the New Testament, it is unambiguous as to what God's desire is. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Or you go to 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, for God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or you go to 2 Peter 3 9, it says, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness, but that he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God's desire, his will is that all people would be saved through Jesus. They'd hear about what Jesus has done for them on the cross, and they'd come to believe in him, have their sins forgiven, and to pursue eternal life with God forever. That's God's heartbeat, right? As to what you mean by God's plan, uh, how he knows things will ultimately play out, he's not shocked when anything comes to pass. When Putin invades the Ukraine, when one of us rejects God and dies, he's not shocked by these. He knows the future, but I would say that he has done everything necessary to reveal who he is and what his son has done, give every single person the opportunity to be able to respond to his revelation in nature, through creation, through the human conscience, by the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, by Christians and missionaries and churches. God has made himself known to every person so that everyone will stand before God and no more say, oh, I never knew. If only I'd known more, I, I would have responded. I think God will do everything necessary to reveal himself to every person, uh, to, to make that choice open and clear. Um, so, yeah, I don't know whether that fully resolves it. If you're here tonight and that doesn't, please come and chat to me afterwards. We'd love to be able to help out otherwise. Now, changing the trajectory a little bit, um, a question on prayer. So if God already knows what's going to happen, why pray? Do our prayers make a difference? This is a really good question. appreciate you asking it. And, um, and the answer is unambiguously again, yes. Because explicitly, when you read the biblical stories, prayers change things. Think of the conversation that Abraham has with God. But what of 50 righteous people in the city? Would you still bring judgment? What about 45? What about 40? What about 35 or 30? What about 20? What about 10? What about one? Is that enough? 
And multiple times throughout the story, as God interacts with human beings, you see God change his mind. Now, this isn't anthropomorphism. God wanted this to come about, but he's relating to human beings to get us involved in his purposes unfolding on the earth. Take something like the statement in Matthew, uh, sorry, in, in James chapter 5, where the prayer of a righteous person availeth much or is powerful and effective. Our prayers really do matter. Jesus um, giving this, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Inviting us to pray and to pray persistently for God to respond. According to the stories and the commands of the Bible, our prayers really do matter. They make a difference. Now you might say, how? If God already knows how he's going to act and exactly how I've just told you. God knows what every person would freely do in every situation in which we find themselves. And so he's unfolding how he reveals himself and how he works in the world. He works our prayers into the system. And you're accountable for what you do and what you do not do. So that James again would say, you have not because you ask not. There is this responsibility where things do not come to pass because we did not play our part. We're responsible for what we do, what we commit, and what we do not do, what we omit, precisely because God weaves our free actions as creatures into how he operates and works out his plans in the world. And so prayers really do matter. They do make a difference. Does that mean God answers with yes every time? No. Do I say yes every time my children ask for ice cream or chocolate? Or Nutri-Grain? No. Why? Because as a dad with a higher understanding of the way that their bodies and needs work, I can see things right now that they can't. That they might think this is exactly how things should play out for me to get what's good. And yet, as a father to them, I have a higher understanding of the way that the world works. And I actually know sometimes I need to withhold even good things from you. Even let bad things somewhat play out in your experience to bring about better things in the future, to bring about my ultimate end game. And so God operates in a similar way. He knows when it's right to say yes, no, maybe, wait. And that's how he interacts with our prayers. I'm sure your kids are upset they don't always get Nutri-Grain when they, when they want it. <laughs> it's a holiday treat only in our family. <laughs> Ours is Cocoa Pops. So only on holidays though. And that's not, we don't even have kids. It's just, that's for me. That's my treat. So... Uh, that's fun. I feel you. <laughs> yeah, Nutri-Grain's probably for you as well, isn't it, mate? So, Now, uh, once again, changing the trajectory a, a little bit, how do we reconcile the difference between the, the four gospel accounts? Yeah, so again, if you're new, you'll be like, what on earth do you mean? Um, so in the New Testament, this speaks on the life and then impact and legacy of Jesus of Nazareth. There are four biographies written either by some of Jesus' close friends or by their companions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you read through them, and there's a lot of shared material. Like some stories, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are almost exactly the same word for word in the original Greek. But then there are differences. Some stories that aren't included in others or different details that come out during these stories, they largely paint somewhat different portraits. 
you might say that Mark's gospel paints Jesus as being this miracle man that's always in a hurry, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. Luke's gospel, that Jesus is this particular savior for all of humanity, a bigger emphasis on his interactions with Gentiles and Romans. You might look at John's gospel and think, wow, it's a really cosmic picture of Jesus, the incarnate God, the word made flesh who dwells among us, the big I am statements of Jesus. And you think, what's going on here? Are these guys just making up extra stuff to try and tell a legendary version of Jesus? What do we do with the differences? And I think you can come at this a couple of ways. One, the fact that we have four gospels that aren't identical word for word all the way through actually strengthens the historical case for Jesus of Nazareth because it gives you four independent eyewitnesses or at least eyewitnesses that give you different information, different independent sources uh, to, to come at it with. And it's like if you were in a court case and you had four different eyewitnesses and they all stood up and their testimony was word for word the same, what would you conclude? And these guys have colluded together. They've come up with a story, they've memorized it, and then they're all reciting it on the stand. It's not genuine, it doesn't play into their own personalities, it doesn't bring in the nuance of what would have stood out to them based on their background and experiences or what would have been highlighted from their unique interactions with Jesus. It's when you get the differences in the details. That's when you start, ah, this gives us a fuller picture that then we can draw together to get, yes, the core of the story we can be sure about. And so that we have the four Gospels, that they differ in the details, doesn't weaken the case for Jesus, it strengthens it. But much of the difference you can really put down to editorial intent, that they're working to speak to different audiences. So if I was coming into high school, I'd talk about TikTok, right? I'd talk about many of the things that are normal for your culture, things that you're watching on TV or Netflix, much of the stuff that's really familiar to you. If I went and spoke in an old person's home, I wouldn't talk about TikTok. They'd have no idea what I'm talking about, right? I'd talk about things that, you know, morphine and tablets and <laughs> timelines, and, right? Because that's more of their experience. And so you're always gearing what you're saying to try and help uh, be helpful to the audience that you're reaching. And when you look at the gospel writers, they're writing to different audiences. Matthew obviously is writing his gospel to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus was the expected Jewish Messiah. And so he keeps showing how Jesus fulfills all of these different Old Testament prophecies. John, in the later years of his life, in his community, was writing to a group of Greco-Roman Christians in ancient day Asia, now modern day Turkey, trying to show them how Jesus fulfills our deepest human longings and how ultimately you can believe in him based upon the miraculous things that he was able to do. Power over evil, over nature, over death itself. And so they're writing to convince different audiences with different kinds of evidence. And I think those portraits, complementary to give you this ultimate picture of who Jesus is, just are explained a lot by the audiences that they're writing to. Wonderful. Next one. How can we trust how the Bible was put together and what books were selected to go into it? That's a good question. And can I say this is a messy answer, right? There is a lot of stuff in life that is not as clear-cut as you wish it were. I sometimes wish the Bible was this perfect book that dropped out of heaven after Jesus ascended and then was handed to Christians and said, now go, make copies of this and send it around everywhere. But that's not what it is. If you've never read the New Testament particularly, it's letters that Christian leaders are writing to their churches because the church is in a lot of mess. Christians were behaving badly. They were getting some of their thinking wrong about God and about Jesus. So they needed to be set straight. 
And so it's letters that Christians are writing to other Christians. Or you've got these biographies of Jesus, which are formed sometimes decades after the life of Jesus, and they're messy in their source material. And the way that the, the Bible first comes together uh, was probably by about the end of the second century, about 150 years after Jesus, all of the Christian communities throughout the Greco-Roman world at that point had vague consensus on which of the letters from the apostles and which of the biographies of Jesus they really believed that were meant to be scripture from God, that they carried God's weight, his inspiration, his authority. And they used a few criteria to do this. And the Christian leaders at the time described what they used to get in certain books and to make sure that the other books, ah, they don't quite match up. And so they required particularly three things. One was what they called apostolicity, meaning it either had to be written by an apostle or a close companion, a colleague of one of the apostles. It had to bear apostolic testimony or weight. A second criteria was that it had to have this Catholicity with a small c, that the whole church had to together recognize that this book was helpful to build us up as the church. We sense God speaking through it, that he's helping us become more like Jesus. And so that was something that was universally agreed upon by the early church. And then this orthodoxy, that what was contained in these Gospels or in these letters, it actually matched God's revelation throughout the Old Testament and what we knew from the apostles as being the stories about Jesus. And if it contradicted them, if it came into conflict, well, then it isn't really true. It can't come from God because he's not the author of confusion. God cannot lie. This can't be genuine scripture. And so the New Testament texts were basically settled upon by about the end of the second century. That's where you see extensive lists kind of coming about. Um, so it's a messy process. It's not clear cut, it's human, but we believe that God worked through human beings to reveal himself through Jesus, to write scripture, right from Old to New Testament, and the wisdom and testimony of the early church together to discern which books carried God's weight or written by apostles and ultimately were helpful to build up the church. So for instance, we know the apostle Paul wrote more letters that we don't have. He wrote a letter to the Laodiceans that we know about because he tells us in the last chapters of the book of Colossians, we don't have it. Uh, he wrote other letters to the Corinthians. We don't have them. They just didn't get copied to get sent to other churches because it thought it was universal for everyone. It was probably just a letter for that church, helpful for them at that time, and, and that was it. And so the ones that we have, we believe God providentially kept to be able to be helpful for God's people. That's wonderful. Now, another uh, longer question that might answer a lot of people's questions uh, in one. Um, uh, increasingly, there is an awareness that astronomy, mathematics, physics, chemistry, and cognitive science point towards theism and Christianity in particular. That's sort of what you were speaking about this morning, I think. However, geology remains a bastion of naturalistic thought. How should I respond to the problems posed by current geological claims, e.g. the extremely old age of the Earth, multiple periods of life and extinction predating humanity? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and again, uh, in many respects, I probably need to feign ignorance here. I'm not a geologist. So when you're talking about specific, particular problems, I'm like, I've got no idea. And it's really okay when people ask you questions and say, I don't know because you're not an expert in everything. No human being is. 
So if you want an answer to that, you should probably find some qualified Christian geologists who know what they're talking about uh, to be able to kind of process that. The second half of the question, though... We have one sitting up the back at the moment. There you go. Perfect. Um, So go and see... I don't know who that is, but go and see him at the end. Um, as to the particular problems then, as I shared before, different Christians have different ways of making sense of God's two books in Scripture and in nature. So the kind of things described as different epochs of life uh, here or development across time um, will only be a problem if you're a young earth creationist or certain versions of old earth creationists. And so um, if you're a theistic evolutionist or other progressive creationists, you won't have a problem with there being life, uh, death, dinosaurs and stuff well before humanity existed. Um, But you just believe that God created human beings either specially or revealed himself specially to a unique pair that he set aside, gave them a paradise, gave them a different experience than uh, than the rest of the wild world beyond the borders of Eden, and that only after they sinned did then they become susceptible to suffering, sickness, death, and decay. So long story short, Christians disagree on this. Um, If you're inclined more to move down the young earth creationism or, again, certain versions of old earth creationism, then these are problems that you would need to go to groups like Answers in Genesis or um, Creation Ministries International to try and process, yes, as a group of geologists, how do you make sense? Because many of the scientists in those groups, that is actually their fields of expertise. A number of guys who studied particularly here at UQ, we've got a um, maybe we might say batting above our average um, from PhDs uh, in geology at UQ that have moved into sort of creation science or young earth creationism. So, um, so you could be able to find their answers online as well. Yeah, wonderful. This um, this next question this was asked by several of the youth uh, in their question box that they had over this uh, over this past weekend. If Satan and demons all uh, know that they've already lost, why do they keep fighting? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, maybe we should ask a wounded lion, <laughs> why do they keep fighting? Um, because there's an instinct kind of there um, until you go down, right? Uh, and there's probably a degree to which as much as the ultimate battle has been decided, you can still hurt the ones that you love, that God loves. Uh, in the kids' Jesus Storybook Bible that was put together by Sally Lloyd-Jones and Jago, the illustrator, uh, I think there's a brilliant insight in there as to what motivates much of malevolent spiritual forces. And it's the idea of being able to get God where it hurts by leading astray and hurting those whom he loves. Um, so even though the ultimate end is decided, still much damage can be done. And so the New Testament speaks of Satan, though a defeated foe, still is incredibly dangerous. You know, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking at those whom he can devour, and uh, probably does that with, with great relish, um, wanting to see how many he can take with him. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a tragic story. We have a few more just to, uh, to finish our time together tonight. Um, this one, I think, is, is really valuable. So why couldn't God just place all sins onto a random person? Why did it have to be Jesus? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and part of it seems to be the way that God has set up the logic of his justice, in the Bible. And part of it may seem somewhat arbitrary when you look at it. Um, Certainly the Bible says from the very beginning that the wages of sin is death, that God is the author and the giver of life, that life is his good gift, but it's a provisional gift. You don't get to keep it if you mismanage it. 
And because we sinned, became damaged by evil, used our freedom to go against the goodness of God's design, all of us became susceptible to death. All of us now carry the wages of sin. All of us commit and are damaged by evil. And so none of us live up to the life for which we were created. All of us deserve judgment. Now, God could have judged us all in that way, and that would be just. That would be right. But God being who he is, even though we've sinned, still loves us. And so how can a God who has to uphold justice, he has to condemn evil as evil. He can't just pretend it doesn't matter because look at the world it's destroyed and how many lives it's destroyed. Think of the people who have been most hurt and victimized and tyrannized. If God said, actually, I just forgive it. It doesn't matter what was done to you. It doesn't really matter. What would we think of that kind of justice? No judge would be thought good if he just let evildoers go. God has to somehow uphold justice, condemn evil, but somehow he also needs to justify sinners to say that we can go free to declare us innocent. How? By what logic can this be done? And so the Bible sets up that God's pattern has been the concept of sacrifice. That it's possible that one innocent person take upon themselves the weight of the guilty. And God sets the pattern through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the putting of the guilt onto a sacrificial lamb, and then sets this picture in advance of Jesus, the lamb of God who would come. But he has to be innocent. And there is no human being that's ultimately innocent. No human being has faced the temptation and the trials of our human existence and ultimately lived faithfully through it, not turn their back on God, not broken God's design. It has to be some innocent person, otherwise they're just as liable for guilt in the first place. But it also has to be someone who can bear the weight of all human guilt, whose life is worthy enough to count for all of our deaths. And what kind of infinite person is there like that? What kind of infinite goodness? And so it's a cost that only God can pay because of his infinite nature. But it's a cost that only man should pay because it's humanity that sinned. And so God becomes humanity to be able to enter that place, to be a right substitute and sacrifice, to be able to bear the cost of that. And that's why it's important that Jesus didn't just turn up as a baby and then get creamed by a rock falling on him or something like that. It's important that he be tested and tried, yet proved to be faithful, that he show us the way of love for which we were all designed to love God perfectly and love others, and that his suffering be public enough so that no one can say that God just wipes away sin as though it doesn't matter. But that when we look at the cross, we understand the weight of evil, the costliness of evil, the anger of God at evil for how it has corrupted and destroyed those whom he loves and the world that he created. And that's the weight of what we see Jesus suffering as he suffers our stripes and carries our cross and dies our death. That's the agony of the cross. And so that's something of the logic of crucifixion and why God has seemingly done it that way, at least maybe as best as we can intuit. Wonderful. I'm going to ask two more, two more questions. Um, once again, this came up a couple of times from, uh, from everyone who was attending youth camp. Is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the one person? No, they're not. Uh, let's talk exact 
careful language. And this is a little bit mind-boggling. I'll give you a couple of analogies and then tell you why they're terrible, right? Um, the best language that early Christian thinkers came up with was to say that God is Trinity. He's a tri-unity. He is one what God and three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is one being, yet three persons, three centers of consciousness, three minds who can think, reason, love, respond. And so one being, but three divine persons. There isn't three gods, there's one God, but that God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the language of the Trinity. And it's very difficult for us to conceive of that because we're used to one being, I, a human being, and one person, me, Dan Patterson, right? We are one being, one person, but God is one being, three persons. How does that work? Is that just bad maths? C.S. Lewis had a helpful analogy where he said, human beings trying to conceive of the Trinity is like a two-dimensional object. Picture a piece of paper, right? It's only got length and width but not really height, right? It's, uh, it's not it's paper thin. Imagine just length and width. Now, imagine a, a two-dimensional object like a square. You've only ever experienced two-dimensional objects, length and width, that's it. Everything you bump into on this two-dimensional plane of existence only has length and width. So one square is one thing. But all of a sudden, you start having someone describing to you the concept of a cube. That somehow, six squares can also be one thing, a cube, a three-dimensional object. And in your two-dimensional mind, you're trying to conceive of a three-dimensional object, and you're like, wait a second, this doesn't work. How can this possibly fit together? Because our minds are limited in what they can conceive based upon our everyday experience. I think the closest thing a philosopher theologian has come to in terms of an analogy is by using something like the ancient three-headed dragon of Greek mythology, right? It's one thing, right? It's one being, it's a dragon, but yet this dragon has three centers of consciousness, three heads that work cooperatively in how the one being ultimately functions. They're equally all the dragon, and yet they cannot be divided or separated in their being. Does that make sense? That's maybe the closest thing you could conceive of in how God operates. But again, God is not material object. He is spirit. So wrap your head around that one. Here's a couple of, here's a couple of fun statements. Um, Augustine of Hippo, the famed bishop, uh, he said, if you try and deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. But if you try and explain the Trinity, you lose your mind. Right? Or John Wesley, the famous theologian of the First Great Awakening, he said, show me a man who, uh, show me a worm who comprehends a man, and I will show you a man who comprehends the triune God. There is just such a category difference between us as a finite and fallen human being than understanding the nature of God as Trinity. But there is nothing logically contradictory about God being one being and three divine persons. It's just hard for us to conceive of.
Now, the final question um, I'm going to ask. Now, I know there's other questions that have been asked uh, of, from many of you that we haven't been able to get uh, to tonight. Now, after our service uh, tonight, you'll still have an opportunity to go and chat to Dan and ask him some questions if they haven't been answered tonight. Please go and connect with him as you're, uh, as you're um, buying copies of his, uh, of his book. Just another quick plug in there for you. <laughs> For you, mate. Um, but just any fine, final comments, and also just uh, landing on this question: Why is Jesus the only way? Why can't just being a good guy be accepted? It's a really good question. Um, we've got two videos on our channel that I'd love you to go and watch when you're thinking around why is Jesus? Why can he be the only way? Um, one is just called "What About Other Religions." Yeah. Is there truth in other religions? What does it mean to people who believe other things about God or life or ultimate questions? So what about other religions? Please check that one out. The other one is what happens to people who die without Jesus? It's a really important video to consider um, the implications of a question when we say, what does it mean that Jesus is the only way? The reason why I am incredibly comfortable believing Jesus' statement when he said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me is because Jesus is the only religious figure who claims to be able to deal with the heart of our human problem, which is the problem in our human heart. He is the only religious figure who claims to be able to do something with the problem of sin that has each one of us captive and for which each one of us owes a debt to God's justice. Only Jesus offers atonement for sin. Only Jesus offers forgiveness for sin. Only Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he has the power to conquer death itself as our last and greatest enemy. So if you're going to say, who out of everyone are you really going to trust has the answers? Well, it's the guy that's still standing after a couple of thousand years. He is the last man standing when everyone else is in the grave. So because he's the only one that rightly diagnoses our human problem, the only one who offers a cure for it, the only one whose life is ultimately worthy of true emulation, revealing the depths of God's love in who he was and how he lived and his redemptive interactions. I've got no problem with the exclusivity of Jesus, particularly because his invitation is the most inclusive of anyone out there. What do you have to do? It's not earn enough of God's love. You can't. You just can't. Trying to earn anyone's love is exhausting. You can't earn God's love. You'll never be good enough. Here's the good news. He gives it freely. He loves you at the very beginning, before you've done everything, before you've done anything, before you've screwed up and made a mess of your life, after you've screwed up and made a mess of your life. He loves you. He loves you before any of that. And the only thing necessary to be able to be saved from sin, to have an eternal future with God, is to be able to believe in what Jesus has done for you. It's salvation by grace through faith. It's a gift of God's grace, and it's received purely by accepting what Jesus has done for you, trusting that his death and resurrection, that that makes you right with God. It's the most inclusive invitation. You don't have to learn another language. You don't have to memorize a book. You don't have to do a bunch of religious deeds. You don't even have to come to church. That's a free gift of God. But because of receiving that love of God, you want to. You want to start following Jesus. You want to become who you were created for. You want to start caring about other human beings. You want to learn more about Jesus at church. You want to use the gifts that God gave to you. You want to leave darkness and evil behind because you see its cost. It's because you're loved by God and changed by him. That's what makes the difference so that you can follow Jesus. And so I think Jesus is incredibly good news because of the diagnosis, the cure, 
for what he ultimately promises. He's the only one that does any of that. And then the evidence that backs it up, his resurrection from the dead, the very centerpiece of human history. Go and look into that. Please do. It's really worth believing. Um, in, the, in the book, let me chat just a couple of seconds about that. If you're new, completely new tonight, you're figuring out what do you believe about God, what do you believe about Jesus, please pick up a copy of this. If you can't buy one, I'll give it to you, seriously. Because the first third of the book, it's written for newcomers. Maybe even you might have some reservations about religion, about Jesus. That's who we wrote it for. And it explains what Christianity is all about. An overview of the Bible, helping answer life's deepest questions. It explains what it would mean to believe in Jesus. What changes if you become a Christian? What does it mean to follow him in the modern world? And then it gives a lot of space to questioning the story in part three of the book, where most of the common objections and doubts and questions it dives into in a way that will be helpful to you uh, to be able to help wrestle through those doubts that you might have. And so it's great for newcomers, great for doubters, great for new Christians, but it's even great for Christians to learn how to think more clearly about what you believe and why, and to prepare you for better God conversations with your friends and families. It's kind of a one-stop shop that we hope will be helpful for anyone. So that might be useful to you as well. Wonderful. Hey, Dan, you have blessed us so much today, mate, with your sermon this morning and answering so many questions tonight. And I just think it would be really great if we could just honour Dan. Can we just stand to our feet and give him a round of applause and thank him? Super kind. Thank you so much. Thank you.